Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Like our chicken fried and cold beer on a Friday night. A pair of jeans that fit just right. And the radio up. There's nothing like country and western music on a Thursday morning. So uh, I thought I'd play some for you. Joining me are two guys that don't even like country and western music. They don't like either kind. I didn't know that was two kinds until Duffy White told me that. Duff, what kind of music you like? I like both kinds. Really? Yeah. <laughs> country and western Duffy White, funny. Um, Jeff Kenny joins me from uh, Southern California, I think. Are you still in Southern California? Are you up in Vegas? What's going on? I am. I'm in uh, San Clemente. And I, too, have selected country western music that I like. Like um, really? the guy who does Copperhead Row. Yeah. Oh. And uh, a couple other things. Wow. But- who knew? But Johnny Ken- Cash. Who Johnny Cash. Like Johnny Cash. You know, uh, Ira Hayes, man. The first, uh, the first album I ever bought, Johnny Cash at San Quentin. Yeah, that's no a kidding. good one. On the Columbia Record, right club, where you got what, like six or seven albums, and then they'd send you shit every month, and if you didn't send it back in time, right, you were, uh, you were screwed. I remember that. <laughs> right, what a scam. Right. Marshall Tucker band, you got you can't beat it, man. <laughs> you can't beat it. Oh these uh Tim Lynch joins me. Tim, you're not a country guy either, right? You're a rock and roll guy. I didn't want to be a f- bad man, but I was born with a fast hand. That's Cody Jinks, brother. It's my theme song. Didn't want to be a yeah. yeah. You you have a theme song? Only when I'm working out and I and I'm talking to myself. Yeah, I've got my own uh, theme song. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You put on, you know, I didn't want to be a bad man, but I was born with a fast hand, so it's a. Uh, be know. be careful with that whole talking to yourself thing. That all. Well, I was <laughs> going to say, you know, I'll get you institu- institutionalized, but they don't do that anymore, right? No, heck no. Yeah, think of the past. Uh, yeah, everybody's Obviously they're all hey, they're all downtown. Government check, another government check. Who knows? Yeah, you just get a roll of tar paper and a and a and a tent from uh, Outward Bound, and there you are in the street, man. That's yeah, what they well, do now. on the beach in Venice. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that is not that is not going over well. The homeless people, like, they roll around, like, with impunity, too. All you got to do is give them some food and not run them out, and then their friends come, and then the TV cameras show up, and then you can't do shit to them. Right? And Venice. That place was weird to begin with. Hey, do you remember San Diego in, like, the, you know, I went to college there. So I first went to San Diego in the early 70s, like 73, 74, when my dad managed the Padres. You didn't go near anywhere near downtown. Oh yeah, I remember yeah. that. Right. I remember Broadway, that Broadway, man. Hort, yeah, Horton oh, Plaza, yeah. Broadway, right? Nothing but drug dealers, strip clubs, right? It was a bad, bad place. The built fun time. <laughs> it was like uh, Hill Street or in in uh, Jacks in uh, Oceanside or or Court Street in Jacksonville. Back yeah, at, packs of sailors walking around there. But it's back like at Jackass Island for men such as we. Back at back in the day, right? Not like right. you wouldn't. I mean, it was a throwback to overseas. I mean, it was a yeah. little bit tamer, but not right. But not too much. That'd be a good idea for a book, Mac. You could write 
when Kenville was good. <laughs> no, but it was. <laughs> but it was. I mean, it was wild, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. and now, I mean, that stuff doesn't exist anymore. But, um, but I mean, San Diego, San Diego, the billions of dollars that they pumped into downtown San Diego to make it, it the beautiful thing that it is, overrun by urine, feces, and homelessness. Yeah, gas lamp. Uh, it's, it's San Diego yeah. too. Gas lamp, really? Oh my God! Yeah. Uh, well, you know, again, again, the the mild weather, you know, and yeah. yeah so anyway, um, yeah, um, and for whatever reason, like COVID, like it hasn't like run amok through the homeless community. Yeah, that's a tell. Maybe that's, that's a- why we had the Nostradamus talk about a year ago. That was yeah. the original tell. Because of the robust autoimmune systems? No, because the bums weren't dying. That's how you know you're not in a really serious pandemic. There's a yeah. you got canaries in the coal mine. They're like bums, yeah, bums like in canaries in the coal mine. Yeah. The bums are. The um let's see. I've I I have a history question first and then we're gonna talk a little bit about Afghanistan. Um when you think of like and because and the, this question popped into my head because on a number of occasions we talked about and you guys are both reading about him, but what a unique leader Theodore Roosevelt was, right? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. right. And so when you think of leaders that fascinate you, give me your give me your top three. I won't restrict you to one because we we did our the the what battle would you most like to see? And then Jeff came back and said, "Hey, people love that." and, and you know, maybe I said, well, let's yeah. just well, let's just talk our top three. So when you when you think of leaders, Timmy's got his head down thinking. Yeah. Um, when you think of leaders that fascinate you, um, who is that? Tim, give us your first one. Uh, the, well, the, the the first one is Roosevelt for sure. I mean, the, the guy is a junior assistant secretary of the Navy. He sees the Secretary of Navy off for his vacation before that guy's carriage has even left D.C. Roosevelt was sending out orders, marshaling the ships to go get ready to fight Spain. I mean, by the time the guy got back to Washington, it was like the whole Navy was on a war footing, which is why we uh, we did so well in the Philippines, was because Roosevelt left alone to be acting Navy secretary, immediately mobilizes the entire Navy. I mean, shit like that. that you, that's that's that is amazing. Yeah, this is amazing. Yeah. All right. So Roosevelt's number one, Jeff. You now here's the rule: you can't pick somebody that somebody else already picked. Okay. Okay. Good. That's uh, we'll call uh, that the Nightingale rule. Okay. So I say Winston Churchill. Whoa. Uh, yeah. A little bit. He's basically a little younger than uh, you know by about uh, thirty years or so than uh, Teddy Roosevelt. However. Like Roosevelt, like Theodore Roosevelt, he understood the vital importance of uh, in a man's development and education more than just knowledge and you know and book learning. The character that is developed through adversity, he realized that he was obsessed with proving himself as a man, as a soldier, in much the same way Theodore Roosevelt was, and that ran through all their uh, philosophies throughout the whole. You know, throughout both their careers, even though careers their careers were vastly different. So you had uh, Theodore Roosevelt. You know, he uh, he fought 
and I know Timmy just read this, to have blood sports retained at Harvard and Yale. I mean, mm-hmm. like boxing and stuff like that. Because he not because he just likes people to fight, but because of the, the, the character building aspects of that of physical adversity, which you know he called the vigorous or rigorous life, you know? And and Winston Churchill, the same thing. When Winston Churchill as a young man, was uh, basically Lord of the Admiralty, kind of like being the Secretary of the Navy. He come up with the, He was very much like the way Timmy described Theodore Roosevelt. He was pushing to do uh, dynamic amphibious things to to alleviate the massacres going on in the Western Front. The first one he tried was in the Holland area, and that didn't work. And then the next one, of course, was the disaster at Gallipoli. But if uh, but he. You know, and when and when Gallipoli happened, he took responsibility for it, and then he went into the trenches himself, first as an EXO and then as a battalion commander in those miserable goddamn trenches in Belgium, you know, fighting in World War One as an infantry officer, a major, you know, and then absolutely, you know, an executive officer and then a commanding officer. So you got to give it to the guy, and he never gave up at anything. The other thing about both those guys, they wrote their own speeches. And that is, I think, their last two <laughs> famous guys who did that. Because, and one of them, Theodore Roosevelt could not say enough. And he would kill people from boredom with these speeches <laughs> that go on for two hours. And matter of fact, when he got shot, what saved his life was the thickness of the speech. <laughs> yeah, in his pocket. In his pocket. <laughs> that um, was so but, funny. but Winston Churchill was a little bit smarter than that. He did his speeches short to the point, And he did them in, like, there were, like, four sentences per thought, you know? And uh, so they were both realized that the necessity of that. And that's the that's the thing I take away from, you know, Winston Churchill and and, and how he's similar to Theodore Roosevelt. This is going to surprise people. Um, and my ins- my instinct was not to say this name at first, but I, I truly believe he's one of the greatest leaders in American history. And that's George Marshall, um, probably one of the greatest leaders uh, with the least amount of fanfare, right? Constantly shaping, right? The infrastructure, the force, the resources, so that his subordinates, if you will, could do what they were supposed to do on this grand scale. When you know, and he does it, and, and he he rebuilds the American military three times, and so it's very interesting when you talk about the concept of deterrence, right? Um, and it is so he goes to World War One and they have to build out, you know, the United States Army, you know, and then, you know, then we stand it down. World War Two comes. He's involved in the same exact process. And then what do we do after World War Two? Oh, it's a nuclear age. So none of this matters. And then for Korea, we build it all up again. And we've never, and we've never really done that since because and it was. And, and so but what what to me. I find so amazing about Marshall is that, um, you know, he did not have the ego that others had incredibly competent. And I'll tell you what, when you read how he does the intellectual background behind the Marshall plan, right? It wasn't only, it was, it wasn't only to give, you know, to help Europe get off its ass, but it was also, and I just read this, and this is why I think he's a genius. I just read this within the last year. But it was also to give the American economy a soft landing after the war. That mm-hmm. This increased demand for all these appliances, all these things that we would send over, right, as part of the quote-unquote Marshall Plan, 
really was a, was was subsidizing the American worker coming out of wartime production. And I mean, come on, man, yeah. are you kidding me? So he he. He he builds out the American military, resources a son of a bitch, and then he, he becomes Secretary of State. And then the Marshall Plan is not only you know helps Europe transition, but you know is the soft landing for the American economy. Like, get out of town, man! And so, and again, all um, you read the stories about him walking his dog and shit like that, right? And just like you know this 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 guy who's you know, walking his dog and his footsteps are being felt around the globe, right? And and just just this incredible uh, leader, uh, I think. All right, Timmy, number two? Number two would have to be Ulysses Grant. I mean, it's he's just too much of a phenomenon to be so unsuccessful. And and just like, and, and, and very similar in nature to, to both Roosevelt and, um, and Stonewall Jackson. Once as they ascend the heights of these responsibilities, all this prior medical problems they've had all their lives go away, disappear the day that they accept that responsibility. Same was true with Grant, yet he's still uh, he's just one of those enigmas. You you don't know how how he got to, to be as to have the touch that he had. It would have been fascinating to, to sit there and watch that. But I don't think you could watch him and learn anything. You'd have to be hanging out with with Sherman because he'd explain it to you. I don't think Grant would. Sherman apparently was uh, very famous for explaining himself to everybody who didn't didn't want to hear it. But not Grant. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> Jeff, number two. Okay, this is like my favorite leader. I mean, is, is Hawkins from the Hawkins room? William William Hawkins, the uh, lieutenant on Tarawa, who. As uh, General Shoup, then Colonel Shoup, said, you can't often credit one lieutenant with single-handedly being responsible for victory in a battle, but Hawkins came as close to it as any one guy probably ever did or ever will. And uh, his uh, the the guy decided, he saw the situation, you know, the hopelessness of what they were trying to do, and he said, I'm going to, um, we're going to succeed at this, or I'm going to die trying, and he did. And uh he, he, uh, you know, the, the quotes that people write about him, like his infuriated singleness of purpose, you know, the things that, uh, you know, the, the, that, the fact that his platoon, you know, on the very, the very uh, point of the pointy end of the spear, only, the only casualty, the only KIA they had until he died was him on the second day, or actually the night of the second night. Then they lost about, uh, you know, 30% of their guys. But until then, basically, they were firing and he was maneuvering. Now, that's normally not the way we teach lieutenants how to handle platoons. But Tara was kind of a different situation. And, uh, you know, so that really – and then uh, when he was dying, somebody says, this ain't no way for Robert Sherrod, I think. So this ain't no way for William for, – for a lieutenant to die or something like that. And uh, he said, you can't pick a better way. And then they shot him full of morphine because his – he was torn almost in half on his shoulder from exploding. Uh, I think it was a dual purpose round from a Japanese uh, uh, 20 millimeter cannon or something like that. And uh, he just, he died sometime that night in a morphine haze. Mm. So that the, whoever thought of naming the Hawk after him had their shit together. Cause he was something, he's a real deal. My second one, um, 
I would I I, I want to see the German offensive right against France. I, I want to see that unfold, and I think there's a general. He was a Catholic German. His not his name is like Friedrich von Lorenhoven or something like that, and uh, he attacks down the same road in World War Two that he attacked down in World War One. <laughs> except, except this time he's in a tank, and the first time he was on a horse. He's, but he's. I, I, he, I remember that guy because in Rommel's uh, division. Um, yeah, he's in seventh. Yeah, I remember vaguely. I remember. His, I remember that because I remember there, he was a Catholic officer, like uh, like the guy who who was behind Hitler's assassination. Uh, that that was a small minority, but a highly, you know dedicated bunch a small catholic german officer you know um um in world war ii you know what i'm talking about and i remember i remember reading about that when i was at ioc as an instructor yeah that's when i read it. that's I, what, don't, I don't know the detail you that's did, what, yeah. that's when i read it and he describes hitler awarding him the iron cross and he physically describes hitler pasty skin sunken eyes you know, and this dispassionate in his memoir, you know, as he, st- you know, as he, you know, as he stared at Hitler, he he said, I had no illusions of what that guy was, you know, and I was fighting for my country because I thought it was my duty. But I knew the way he came to power. I knew what he was and what he was capable of. And so the things that I heard, I had no illusions about what was going on. But anyway, but. I would like to see that, you know, the combination of the tractor and the radio and, you know, the shock power, the speed, um, the speed. I, I got intrigued with the whole the whole concept of speed uh, at the basic school, reading about cavalry stuff. And in particular, although he's an abhorrent human being, um, Nathan Bedford Forrest um he consistently fought, out, outnumbered, and he, you know, he would give one command. He'd look at the bugle and say, sound the charge. And what he preyed upon was his speed and violence of action, and the enemy always assumed he was bigger than he was. And, I mean, he beat the shit out of everybody. And so, to me, I, I got intrigued with that whole idea of speed and um, and and. and you know, obviously the, the the German offensive, this whole idea of the Blitzkrieg and what they would what they would do with it. I would love to be in with Friedrich von Lorenhoven or whatever his name is. His books yeah. his books around here someplace. To, is to, it Luf, 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 just yeah. to just to see it in motion. And to see, see if I was it, gonna it, say it, I was gonna say I was gonna say uh Nathan Bedford Forrest. <laughs> I was going back and forth between him and Hawkins. And, uh, well, Forrest I mean, is amazing. I mean, no other Civil War general kills anybody that I know of. Yeah, he's a twenty-three. Yeah, he he killed one or something he, like he that. Kill, he, he kills like eighteen guys in in hand to hand, fighting at close range with pistols and swords. Including one of his lieutenants. Yeah, that pissed him off. Um, yeah, he was not I the guy. Think he was that. I mean, I don't judge him based on today's standards. You know, what I mean, so well, if I you look at him as a military guy, I mean, let me tell you. And then the other yeah. part about about post-Civil War literature is much of it is romanticized and fantasized. So you got to yes. get, you got to get, you know, whether you're talking about Lee or any of their leaders, you, you got to do enough reading and read the footnotes to find out. But Forrest, 
and I had never yeah, heard Kyle of him. I would love to talk about Forrest. Well, I mean, but yeah. when you read about his operations, his mm-hmm. speed and violence of action, they'd bump into somebody, and, and Bugler would be, and he's, and the Bugler later wrote, I didn't even have to, like, you know, wait for the order. I knew what he was going to say. And they said that he would, like, lose his shit in these fights, but he was lucid the whole time. They said you could see him, like, up for the fight, but he always made the right decisions. He never got us, you know, cut off, surrounded, or whatever. And so I, it, that got me intrigued. And being an LAR guy, right, um, with the idea of speed, violence of action, and I mean, there's, and it's not done on a grander scale than it is in Europe, in 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 you know the early, thir- you know, late 30s and early 40s. So I, I would like to yeah. see that. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I was toying, I was toying with Marcus Aurelius because I'm reading the Daily Stoic, and I mean, how does Marcus Aurelius become Marcus Aurelius? I mean, there's no way. I mean, that guy with all the privilege that guy has bestowed on him, how does he become that human being? I mean, well, crazy. I have, to tell you, I have to tell you, Mac, that's a good question. They had what they called the five good emperors in Rome, right. and he was the fifth one. And after him, his kid was a psycho, um, Commodus. But uh, you're right. I mean, his his father and the, the, the emperor before him and the emperor before that, I mean, they were the four before him were good. And um, I mean, they're responsible. You know, they uh, they weren't psychotic, you know, fucking psychopaths and shit like that. Like uh, like the first, you know, like half the first bunch were. And uh, so that's where he he was in that tradition. But, you know, the uh, he, he basically outlawed gladiator con- contests, you know, at, at different points because he thought it was uh, harmful to the soul your average Roman and his son, of course, brought him back. And, uh, Interesting. You know, uh, Harmful yeah. to the soul of the average Roman. Right. Not that it wasn't entertaining, right. but if this is our entertainment, what does it say about us as a people? Right. Mm-hmm. Interesting. No, I, I just and and so I see a fair amount of him in the Daily Stoic, and yep. and 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 it's just like, how does a guy who lives with such privilege become that guy? All right, number three, Timmy. I, you know what? I like well, this. I, I yeah. well, I, I'll throw a, I'll throw a wild card out there Uh-oh. now. Um, my my dad was very close to and spoke uh, in reverential tones about Commandant Burrow, and he would told me several times that during World War II, uh, Burroughs was was behind the Japanese lines in, with Chinese China. running, yeah. yeah, running some kind of. And apparently, there's some kind of, and and I'm I'm saying this hoping Jeff knows what I'm talking about. Some type of famous incident where you radioed in and says, hey, I've got a Chinese Alamo here and I need some help right now. But I never knew more than that. I remember my dad referencing that a couple of times, but apparently whatever he was doing with his little guerrilla bands were quite was quite relevant. And yeah, I, I, I don't know more than that. I tell you, Timmy, I don't know about that, but I know in Korea, in Seoul, his company was heavily engaged. And uh, his battalion commander was a guy who was a POW in the Second World War named Jack Hawkins, who uh-huh. escaped. And the regimental commander was Lewis Puller, who didn't really like POW. He thought POWs got too much credit and right. that their pay should be stopped while they're POWs because they weren't doing anybody any good. And um, so Puller ordered Hawkins to you know advance at all costs. And uh, Hawkins was terrified of, of Lewis Puller and he's ordering uh, – Barrow was in this situation. They seized 
key ground, and the North Koreans, for one reason or another, were streaming flank, you know, were streaming in in front of them, and they were just mowing them down. For him to actually move forward, he'd have to stop the lucrative business of shooting the North Koreans that he was involved in. So he sent one of his, a, a persuasive lieutenant, who I don't know who that is, went around the battalion and got to the uh, regiment and told Puller, and Puller's like, by all means, keep killing them, you know? And, uh, and that's, that was a story I knew about Barrow before he did the night attack that got him the Navy Cross. Right. Chosen, right. Yeah. 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 No, it, I, he I was would, a CEO be... Alpha 1-1. It'd be fat. Well, what the hell was he doing in World War II? I, I, I don't was, know. That you was were right. Story. He was behind yeah. the lines with the Chinese guerrillas. Yeah. I don't know any. I don't know very many details. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I would. I would. Yeah. Think that would be when you read that, you it stops you like what? And you're like, yeah. I don't know anything. Why don't I know oh, anything about that? He spoke. He spoke Mandarin fluently. He did yeah. that shit. To, he did when when did something about. Nixon appointed him to do something with China when Nixon opened China, and he was over there rapping to him in Mandarin. And China's <laughs> like, "Whoa, no!" Mandarin way. with that Louisiana drawl. Yeah, line that, he was telling him, "He was telling him, don't piss down my back and tell me it's raining." Exactly. <laughs> we have a saying where I come from. Yeah, the, uh, that would be interesting to see what the hell he was up to. That would have been something. Yeah, Jeff, number three. Okay, now number three is General O.P. Smith from 1st oh. uh, Marine Division, most specifically uh, the first six months in Korea. When he, when the division finally got enough people in there to have a division after Incheon and all that stuff, 5th Marine's already been in there at the Pusan perimeter. He realized what he had. He had a highly motivated um, you know, division that was poorly supplied, but... Uh, it was like a, it's the strangest military unit in history in that you had about a third of them were the most seasoned people you could get. And the other two thirds were the most green people you could ever get. And uh, but somehow they were meshing together and he had idiotic orders coming to him from the Corps commander, who's an army guy named Almond, who, uh, you know, again, he was terrified to disappoint. MacArthur in, in the, you know, not doing the speed of advance, but O.P. Smith could see the, uh, you know, he could see the tea leaf and that a massive amount of Chinese, you know, were, were, uh, were about to engulf him. And because of O.P. Smith's moral courage, physical courage, you know, and uh, presence of mind, we won that battle. And not only do we save most of the 16,000 or so Marines that were involved, except for the 700 and somehow, you know, 700 and something that got killed. Um, a lot of army guys survived because of them too, from the seventh division. So, you know, um, I say OP Smith, you know, and here's the thing. He was during world war two, he was assistant division commander of the first Marine division during some of their bloodiest fights, most auspiciously the one in Peleliu where a first Marine regiment was just, you know, the division commander Rupert has put him into a meat grinder you know, and they had the least uh, least appropriate guy to be in charge of an attack into a meat grinder. The man who lived to do that type of stuff, Chesty Puller. And I think within 11 days, 1st Marine uh, Regiment was, you know, uh, probably before, well before 11 days, was combat ineffective. And, you know, he pulled him out. But at the same time, he knew how to use his people. He knew how to use Chesty Puller. He knew how to use, uh, you know, Litzenberger. He knew how to use Ray Murray, who was the CEO of the 5th Marines, as a lieutenant colonel then. This is a guy who 
with the book Battle Cry is written about from the Second World War, where he was he was battalion commander at two six. You know, and unlike the book, he didn't get killed. He went on to, you know, eventually retire as a major general. But and I'll tell you what, and if you if you want to read an incredible life story, read that guy's life story. Ray yeah. Murray, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so you know, that's why O.P. Smith. I always admired the hell out of that guy. He's sticking up, you know, to against Alma and even historically. But you know, Jeff, records, Jeff, you know? Jeff, let me ask you a question. Do you think right. he gets credit? No. For the more the moral courage he showed, because he was getting told, "Get your ass up there, get your ass up there, get your ass up there," and he moved the division at a very very deliberate pace based on what he was seeing, and mm-hmm. and he kept get they kept uh, who was the chief of staff? The chief of staff was a guy named Frisbee. No. I, I can't remember, right? But that oh. that jackass. Oh, not 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 marine type, right? But uh, yeah, he was the corps chief of staff. Yeah. And yeah. they're bitching about O.P. Smith and somebody needs to go down there and kick those Marines in the ass and get them moving. I mean, I'll tell you what. And that's, a, I mean, that's, you know, Greg Newbold should yeah. get the O.P. Smith Award. Yes. Right? I think that's a fact. And that is, that is somebody who, who shows uncommon moral courage when all conventional thought is and all uh, promotional inertia tells you that you should be doing something else. Yeah. You, you, you know when when in the midst well hold of on and, so let me so the question was do you think he historically gets enough credit for for that deliberate decision that when you read more about the campaign he made very deliberately yeah if you read uh, if everybody who writes about Korea writes about the Marines like Fehrenbach they give O.P. Smith credit the guy who gives him big credit is uh, and I I think is he wrote he wrote some other stuff that we like. But he wrote this book on desperate ground. And it's a masterful. Uh, right. Oh, Hampton Sides. Hampton Sides. He wrote. Yeah. yeah he wrote a, 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 a Navy book, too, uh, that we like, too. But uh, yeah. Um, and he wrote he wrote stuff about Texas, too, I think. But anyways, I don't want to you know, diverse. But yeah, th- that book there really it really gets into the nitty gritty of O.P. Smith dealing with his like engineer officer. That guy's another hero. Uh, you know, I think his name is Talmadge or Taplet or something like that. The guy who, you know, getting through Faniculin Pass and all that stuff and uh, the incredibly difficult terrain, hundreds of thousands of Chinese, fanatic Chinese, freezing cold, you know, running out of ammo and, uh, you know, and determined not to leave anybody behind. It was a great performance. No, no o- I was just going to say Smith. that in the midst of that, that that Ned, the the corps commander Ned Allman lands in the midst of the helicopter right. of the Army Task Force Faith, and they're saying we're, we're surrounded, we're getting. I mean, we're, we've been cut to pieces. He's like, mm-hmm. no, you're not. No, you're not. No, no, no. Just attack that way. They're just yeah. they're, they're they're fooling with you. You're not you're not surrounded. And the Army guys are looking at him like he's crazy. And then the, the artillery shots start starts falling again. He gets in the helicopter and leaves. Right, yeah, right. That's that is how how bizarre. I mean, it's yeah. bizarre. Yeah. You know, um, I, I do. You guys remember? I mean, within the last year, I thought I read that there was documents um, published. I don't know, maybe from Chinese military archives that talked about the fight that Task Force Faith put up and that they they ultimately were instrumental in saving helping save right the first marine division and that because the historical narrative was not yeah, was not opposite. was not kind to them 
right? Yeah. And and I can't remember. It, it's kind of like when when we talk about Toll and and Atkinson and 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 how they, as 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 younger historians, right now have access to things that are digitized and, and never were. And and yeah. can call records and things like that. I mean, Will's been publishing, sharing with us uh, from at the Atkinson series, um, just um, mental health statistics of, you know, you know, lost to you know, whatever you want to call it, combat fatigue, you know, but in in the ETO for 1944, and the numbers just gargantuan. Gargantuan, oh. and so I. I but yeah. I, I, you guys probably saw that those stories about uh, that were written. I wish I. We should. I should. I should pull the string. I should pull the string on that. Uh, my third. I'm trying to think. My third one. Um, you know who I'd really like to see lead is Abraham Lincoln. And it's oh, a to- yeah, no, yeah, it's a top up, It's a toss up to me between he and George Washington. But to me. Um, and I, I I choose Lincoln because was he really like that, right? And if you could just be his executive assistant and ride on the trains with him and and have the conversations between stops with him and you know and things like that, you know about what his thinking is and and all the rest of that. I mean, I I think um, I don't know. I think those guys are tied for first place in terms of their contribution to the creation of the nation. But Lincoln, you know, shepherding the nation. Through uh, the Civil War um, uh, is is uh, amazing, but I would love to have listened to the conversations that people had with him about these complex issues, right? In this strife, you know, this fundamental strife of the nation, you know, that related to you know, you know, our economic power of different regions of the country, and then how would we ultimately, um, how would we ultimately see that? So, to me, I would. Um, fascinating, fascinating. Um, just to, like I said, sitting there on the train with him on the way back from Gettysburg, right? To hear what he would say. How'd you think that went, sir? Well, you know, yeah. it, it was quick. It was quick. Um, yeah. it was a nice yeah, day. Speech was the quickest. This speech is like, I don't know, like fucking five and a half minutes, and everybody else <laughs> was telling people with boredom. His right. was like. That Gettysburg Address is a masterpiece. Yeah, you know, I mean, things that you will never forget, you know, I mean, just, you know, the the world will not remember, will little remember what was said here, but it will long remember what was done here. I mean, he says stuff like that, and we can, we can, we can consecrate this ground no further than the brave, you know, soldiers that died to consecrate it in search of our liberty. Yeah, I mean, the the whole Gettysburg Address is, you know, and just like I said, just like on the train back to D.C., what did you think of that, you know? And then to hear him say, well, you know, I thought the speech was okay, but you know what I was really fascinated to see was our little carriage ride around the battlefield, right? I'd seen, like, the map of what Little Round Top looked like. I'd seen the map of what, you know, where Pickett, you know, held, you know, staged his last advance. But it's really kind of fascinating to see it there. You know what I mean? I, Yeah, you know, yeah. I just would have, I don't know, me projecting. Yeah, you know, I, I like to read about the whole, I never really know, I, I'll tell you, someone was telling me that uh, he was a one-term congressman who spent way more time as a lawyer for the railroads until he became president. And um, so I'm like, I'm going to look into his background. I'm afraid to, though, because I'm afraid 
it might be disappointing, <laughs> you know, because you know, I mean, I'm hoping not, you know, I mean, because whatever happened, it's like the Roman emperor, the second Roman emperor said, he's morose about it. He goes, becoming the Roman empire is like getting a hold of a wolf by the ears, you know? <laughs> and I think that's what happened to Abraham Lincoln. He had a wolf by the ears. You know? And let me tell you, a wolf by the ears is much different fight than a tiger by the tail. Okay, yeah, yeah. a wolf by the ears is like the last place you really want to be in proximity to to a wolf. You do not want to be in front of him holding the son of a bitch's ears. Okay, and so what a what a great what a great way to phrase this. Go around one more time, but you can only say a name and say one paragraph. I'm going to go first. Um, I read a trilogy about Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement that reads like fiction. I would love to like follow that guy around during that period of time of our history because I mean the, the stories that you read crazy. Tim, give me a name and, and a sentence or two. Yakuska, the original Afro samurai, an African slave from India, so he was guarding a, a, a prelate of the Catholic Church. The Shogun was so impressed with him because he's like 6'4 and apparently was jacked that the Shogun, quote, fought him and he became a samurai. He was the he, he actually took the Shogun's head when they had the big final di- dynastic struggle in the 1500s. People in Japan, when he would do in Tokyo, crowds would get so big that the hundreds would die just trying to get a look at him. He was the most famous man in Japan the richest, had the most wives, and he was the baddest of the badass with a sword, apparently. And there was more than one Afro samurai. There was about four or five of them back in the 1500s. All Afro, from Afro samurai. Afro samurai. It's a whole, Who knew? It's a whole apparently, a comic book uh, a genere about the Afro samurai, but that was all based off of Yakuska, who was a legitimate, no kidding, I mean, he was uh, okay. Uh, that's more than right that's more than two sentences, Jeffrey. Two sentences. <laughs> well, because I'm here and my books are back there. I'm in Unja, and my books are Unja. And um, the uh, I read the the book Timmy and I are reading at the same time about Theodore Roosevelt, which I read before, but I can't get to the second two. So on my Kindle, I got Ragtime, which is about basically the time of Theodore Roosevelt's. Uh, like from 1902 to 1912, roughly, you know, simultaneous time. And it's a great book by E.L. Doctro. It's written in the third, in the first person, or the third person, I'm sorry, in such a way, but it basically hits on all these uh, well-known, famous people from that era, you know, and, uh, and it's a fictional history. It's a great book, and I would recommend it to everybody. It's right. got some funny parts. They got everybody from Houdini to Emiliano Zapata, to, uh, you know, Theodore uh, um, Roosevelt and, um, you know, uh, a lot of other people. So it's a very good Brag talk. Book. There you go. All right. Uh, Tim, what are you reading? I'm still on volume two of the uh, Morris uh, trilogy on Roosevelt. All right. Give us, uh, uh, give us an anecdote from your reading this week. The anecdote from reading this week would be uh, Roosevelt actually showing a little bit of discretion uh, in dealing with Germany and England over uh, Venezuela. Uh, as despite his big stick and soft talk, he was very nimble in handling the Germans, realizing that with uh, with the Kaiser, 
It's all about not embarrassing him in public. So he handled the Venezuelan situation without bloodshed and very adroitly. Adro- which is surprising because Ad- he was bored by it. He, he wanted to go out west and hunt. Adroitly. Yeah. Adroitly. He, he bought the German ambassador over and said, let's go for a run in Rockville Park. And so he gets on his horse. <laughs> it's like 35 degrees and raining like hell. He's up dressed like a Mon- you know, like in his Montana stuff. The Germans in a top hat and tails, and they ride for two hours through Rock Creek Park. The guy looks like he's frozen. He looks like he looks like Fitz looked when you saw him that time at the end of the, oh. of the three day war. Oh. So, and 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 Rose just for the record, Fitz looked like ET when they find ET in the river. That, yeah, he looked just like if you Fitz. remember that that horrifying scene when the beloved ET was found in the river, that's the mental image. Brian Fitzgibbons. Oh. And, yeah. and if Roosevelt liked you, you came into the White House in the after, in the evenings for peel sticks. No shit, peel. They beat each other half to death with these big damn peel sticks. I'm like, he's wrestling I with like this guy. Wrestling with William Howard Taft, making <laughs> William Howard Taft's fat ass wrestling. Yeah. Jeffrey, yeah, that's, that's Jeffrey, what are you reading? Well, that's it. I'm reading Ragtime. Now I read that book uh, in 1975, right after it came out, my first year in the Marine Corps. And I've written it. I've I've probably read it six times through my life. Which one? Ragtime by E. L. Doctorow. So oh. so let me ask you this: 1975 in the Marine Corps. Right. Reading's not such a big deal at the time. Yes. Well, reading penthouse letters was. <laughs> that was it, though, right? <laughs> yeah. That was it. Because when you went into a squad bay, you did not see like congressional quarterly or things like that. You did foreign affairs. You saw any everything you saw was heavy on pictures, yeah, right? No shit. World. There was some good literature. I remember reading. I frantically fiddled with her fur fringe fun knob. I mean, that's some kind of talent to come up with that, man. The, what uh, about Casca books? <laughs> there were always a Casca book. No, yeah. no, it was Louis L'Amour. Oh, yeah, Louis this, L'Amour. Does. Yeah. So the readers read Louis L'Amour. So what would they say to you when they see you reading Ragtime and some of these other things? Um, hey, Kenny, what's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember. Nobody ever gave me shit about that. They, really? I mean, but, uh, yeah, I, I, that book, I remember reading that. That was, uh, it was, it's very funny. It's got a lot of great, it's, it's you know, I, I don't want to go through the whole thing, but it's, uh, it's uh, E.L. Doctorow is a great, he's the one who wrote Billy Bathgate about Dutch Schultz, and he's written a lot of books in his life and screenplays and stuff. And, uh, but that, uh, Ragtime, they made a movie out of it in 1981, right. and uh, they had, uh, it, you know, it's uh, it's it's hard to explain really. But it takes some real events that happen that uh, that form the center of the thing. But it goes through that period, and that was a period when America was, you know, uh, everybody's reading the newspapers, um, uh, and the, and one of the characters in there, a real historical character, Evelyn Nesbitt. She was uh, the wife of this guy named Harry Thaw, who was kind of crazy, a rich kid, trust fund type baby. Oh. And her boyfriend before that had been the, the architect who designed a bunch of famous buildings in New York that still stand today. One of them was the old uh, Madison Square Garden. And on the roof of the Madison Square Garden, they had a very swanky restaurant. And his name was Stanford White. He's up there holding forth, drinking champagne, having dinner. And Harry Thaw hears from uh, Evelyn Nesbitt that she was uh, she was uh, 
given alcohol and then raped by this guy, Stanford White, when she was 15, which is like five years before that. So he goes up on the roof of the, and this is true, this did happen, goes up on the roof and he blows Stanford White's brains out on the roof of this thing and he gets tried. And it's the trial of the century, even though the century is only like two years old, right? And um, he had, you know, uh, he had all kind of lawyers. He's the first famous case where a guy gets off because of insanity. Oh, right. That's yeah. fam- that's famous case. That's famous case. Yeah. Let me I want to I want to kind of put a I, bow. I wasn't expecting that from Jeff. How about that? I wasn't expecting that. I'm I want to put a history I, blood and guts. I want to put a There's little There's a lot of that in this too, man. They got Zapata and fucking I know, but we're out of time, so we got to go. Okay. But I want to I just want to put a bow on something you said earlier. Um that rang a bell. Um I don't know if you guys know Jess Jess Humphrey. But he's a one meth guy. Worked at the meth when I was down there. That's how I met him. Um, his uncle, um, Calvin, is the PFC that I interview about being on Iwo Jima. If you want to hear a great oh, interview, Humphrey, the guy, the fucking, the, the yeah, the, yeah. The his guy. his brother was at uh, AWS when we were at TBS, yeah. and was yeah, a yeah, great yeah, guy. Yeah. So his uncle is Cal. His dad is Bob Humphrey. Right, Bob Humphrey um, fights on. He's a lieutenant on Iwo Jima. He comes home and he winds up going to Turkey um, as right. a problem solver because you know five years before, you know everybody wanted to be an American. Now everybody's starting to hate Americans. So he goes there, and you know, and the State Department's position and and, and the DOD, the Department of War position was they just want more money from us. That's why they're saying this stuff. So Humphrey says, well, why don't you let me go out and talk to people and, 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 and do some research, and I'll come back and tell you. So he does. He comes back, and he says, you're disrespectful to them. You're disrespectful to, to their women. You're disrespectful to, to their culture. They hate you. But you can change this, right? And one of the, one of the instruments that Bob Humphrey would use to right. teach, to teach respect boxing. was boxing. Yeah. Was, I was going to yeah. say the was boxing. boxing. Yeah, I remember him. Yeah, the old the – old, um, fucking human relations bullshit we did my first couple years in Marine Corps were based on Humphreys talking older Krulak into that shit. But the one thing the generals did when uh, they put it in practice, they left out the fighting part. That's integral. That's how everybody respects everybody. Remember how, how, how Humphreys liked the room of pain? Yeah. He was the room crazy of pain. when he saw that. The room of, yeah. That's what makes the room of pain a success. Yeah. The pain part. <laughs> well, and, and it is, and and his his whole thing was, look, you know what people have to learn, get over is their fear of getting punched. He said, yeah. and then what people ultimately respect is not if you win or lose, but if you're, you're just, in there fighting. To do it. Yeah, if yeah. you're in there fighting, and then you learn that you can do it, and then you earn the respect of other people, and there's this magic tonic that teaches respect. Yeah. And and so and so Jess talks about his sisters learning how to box, right? <laughs> right. He would he's he's that platoon commander that boxes everybody, right, in his platoon. Right? And guys like and he's not that big of a guy, right? He's yeah. he's probably, you know, five, you know, seven, eight, you know, and maybe hundred and forty pounds. Right? And yeah, you, and it, you, it doesn't matter though. It doesn't matter. Is. He knows how to box and he so yeah. these guys are like, Yeah, I'll fight you, Lieutenant. And he said, I used to beat their ass, you know, and then help him back up and come on, let's get, come on. You can go. You can still go. Like, no, sir, I've had enough, man. You, it's all right. You've delivered your message. Yeah, I'll tell you what. That's what I did at my rifle company. And, I mean, on ship we did it. And, uh, you know, we did body sparring just like in uh, the Room of Pain. And uh, 
You know, oh, I, I did. I did. And it was fantastic. I mean, you know, we, we, we had a lot of less. We, I well, mean, let let me just tell you, the book is called, his book, right, is called Values for a New Millennium, Activating yeah. the Natural Law. I didn't remember that. Yeah, to, redu- yeah. to reduce violence, vitalize our school, revitalize our schools, and promote cross-cultural harmony, right? Yeah. Values he for a new millennium. He visited us. Yeah, he was, yeah. spoke at AWS when I was there. Yeah, that was his, well. That was his. That was his dad. That was his dad's book, right? Uh-huh. And then, yeah. and then yeah. they send his dad to Vietnam to essentially do the same thing. If you'll treat them with respect, right? And so, anyway, yeah. I mean, just to Jeff, when Jeff made the comment about about boxing earlier, that that, uh, yeah. that it made me think of that. All right, boys, uh, appreciate it very much. I'm headed to Illinois and then on to Maryland, on to Annapolis, Timmy. Yeah. There you go, brother. Well, have a great time. It's yeah. a beautiful city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll let you know if, if, if I have time to record something for next week. Hopefully I will. But uh, Dash 2 getting married uh, in Annapolis. So, uh, yeah. Well, good. Uh, congratulations. Yeah, to, uh, going to be a, gotta go a tear for Admiral Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, anyway, I'll be there. Anyway, have a great day. Thanks. Roger. Right. See you guys. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye. That is the Mensa Brothers here on a Thursday. You know what? All that happened impromptu. We were going to get to Afghanistan, but uh, <laughs> but we did not. Um, if you can't tell, we don't mind talking about history. Yeah, no, and we've all read a bunch of it, and uh, it's fun to listen. I mean, I I, I, enjoy, I sit I enjoy just as much sitting here listening to those guys as I as I do running my yacht. Have a great day. Have a great weekend. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. If I can help you or somebody you know, call me. Email me. Send a message. And uh, I'll be more than happy to. Uh, On behalf of the Mensa Brothers today, uh, Will Traveling, but Jeff and Tim, um, have a great day. I'm Mike McNamara, the host and founder of All Marine Radio, into the sixth year of this thing. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Have a great weekend. We'll see you Monday.